Okay. Hey, take your Bibles, if you will, and let's get to the serious stuff. Uh, Turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, and we'll start in verse 1. Same passage as last week. We're going to have the same major point as last week. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, and this is God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray one more time. Father, May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin with uh, where we left off last time, which is our main idea. And the main idea is there's a difference between believing in God and trusting him. And if you remember, I uh, brought up two perspectives. Perspective number one is that of a person who may be searching for Jesus Christ. uh, And they may or may not know it that they're searching for Jesus Christ. But there's not a soul who ever lived that doesn't at some point say, why am I here? Not a soul who ever lived uh, hasn't asked the question, why does life have meaning? Meaning, why does my life have meaning? Not a soul who ever lived didn't have those kinds of ultimate questions. Um, How about this? Not a soul who ever lived hasn't thought um, uh, about social justice. I mean, you see somebody hurt, you see somebody diminished, you see someone uh, marginalized, you see someone poor, you see someone deformed, um, there's, you, you, you feel empathy for this situation. You look at the culture around you and you see it undulating and there's right and there's wrong and there's hurt and there's trauma, there's car accidents and, uh, and people lighting people on fire and just all kinds of things and you go, oh, what? that's so terrible. Why do you have a sense of that? Why do you ache for things to be put right? Why do you want justice? Why do you want social justice? Why? Well, uh, the culture tells me, no, no, no. Don't do that. 
Why? Why has every culture, why has every soul who ever lived asked these kinds of questions? Why? Well, uh, it just seems right. Well, what's right? Well, there's, there's a right and wrong. Well, who sets what right, what's right and wrong? Where does that come from? Uh, how about this? Uh, if you want to take it all the way, um, why don't we all just kill ourselves? I mean, why don't we just, uh, life gets hard, why don't we just take, just take ourselves out? Well, it doesn't matter anyway. Well, well because uh, I want to, you know, life should be enjoyed. Well, why? Why does it matter? Why do you want, why do you want that? Why does it even matter? So what I'm saying to you is that uh, we're all seeking some kind of answer um, for, for why we're here. There seems to be some kind of net that's holding everything together. Hey, I'll tell you this. Um, you know, we have a little doggy named Jules. And uh, who's got a doggy? You've seen your doggy dream, haven't you? Isn't it cute? Oh, it's so cute. They'd lay there and they go... And uh, yeah, I know what my dog's dreaming about. She doesn't have to tell me. There's only one thing. I mean, she's got the brain the size of a racquetball. She's dreaming about squirrels. That's all she's dreaming about. She's not, she's not dreaming going, I wonder what the inside of that big dog's house three houses down is like. I wonder if he's got a good setup. That's not what a dog's thinking. A giraffe is not thinking, you know, I got a really busy day next Thursday. <laughs> They're not thinking that. They don't think in those terms. We're different than them. We're created in God's image, and we ache for answers to deep, ultimate questions. And I'll tell you, you've got you've to do flips and twists not to see some kind of design in this world, all right? Earnest seeker. For instance, have you ever heard that uh, nature likes a, loves a hexagon? You ever heard that? I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, here you've got this, this beehive, and uh, you, you know, not only is, is it a hexagon pattern, but it's, it's spherical, and it's, it's able to hold on to something. I mean, it's just, that, isn't that amazing? That's amazing architecture. There, there's some kind of, it looks like design to me. How about this? They're not all hexagons. Uh, there's some fiveagons, or whatever that word is for that, but uh, there's, but I mean, check it out. On a turtleback. How about uh, on a snakeskin? There are four big sides, two little ones. Uh, how about uh, it's in, uh, appearing in different snowflake uh, formations, ice formations? How about uh, these rocks? Oh, what's the name of this darn place? Uh, the, it's, in, it's in Northern Ireland. Giant's Causeway. Giant's Causeway. This is like the top of the rocks. So looking down, like from the, an airplane looking down, that's the top of the rocks. Look at the sides. Oh, there's another one. Look at the sides. That's some kind of volcanic formation. Check it. That's amazing. They're big, tall hexagons that are somehow united. I mean, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, if you can't look at that and go, okay, there might be some kind of architect, maybe, uh, then I, I, really, I think you're, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> but so let's say you acquiesce and you say, all right, uh, I'll, I'll say, oh, yeah, there's some kind of creative being or power. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Well, so what? It makes virtually no difference to your existence if you believe that there's some big being or power that made these hexagons. Uh, what difference does it make to you? But, ladies and gentlemen, what if there's the second scenario? What if a man or woman has exercised faith in the God of this Bible as he has expressed himself? He says, look, look in this book. This is who I am. This is how I am. This is the way I behave. 
Well, if you believe in the God of this book and you believe that he made a provision for you in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ took that sin sin debt for you on the cross, died for you, paid the penalty, and thus God forgives you because he didn't just ignore sin, he put it on someone else who took your place. If you believe that, if you believe the gospel messages as depicted in this book, well, there are some giant ramifications, ladies and gentlemen. Here are a few of them. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, that is to God, if we confess our sins to him, acknowledging we broke his laws, he is faithful to his own word. He's just, he hasn't sacrificed justice. He, someone else took the penalty to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's a pretty giant ramification, isn't it? That your soul would be cleansed, that your conscience would be cleansed, that you would feel relief over the things that we've said and done and the things we should have done that we didn't do. That's a giant ramification. How about this? This is in uh, Acts 3.19. Repent that your sins may be blotted out. Um, Here's another one from Isaiah 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, you know, a deep color of red, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red crimson, they shall become like wool. You know, it doesn't take a a Bible genius to see that that has to do with uh, a stain. So God is saying, hey, let's reason together. You have a stain You got a really hard stain that can't come out? Well, I can make you as white as snow. I can make you as white as wool. I can take the stain out. Uh, Here's another ramification. Um, Let me get there real quick. Um, Romans 2, check this out. Um, Yeah. For when the Gentiles, oh, wow, who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves. Now, you've heard that expression in your lifetime, haven't you? Well, he's a law unto himself. Where do you think they get that? I mean, it's completely misapplied. It doesn't mean what it says here. All right, but check this out. It's saying, hey, the Gentiles don't have the law of God, but by nature, they do what the law requires, even though they're a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse. Isn't that interesting? I mean, people have a conscience. It's like the thumbprint of God on humanity. And even though they don't have this in front of them, and they may or may not know the scriptures, they may or may not have God's moral law, that's still that sense of right and wrong, that sense of, of how things should be better than they are in this world, where do you think that comes from? The Bible is saying it comes because God's got the ultimate standard, and it's it's hardwired into who we are as people. How about this? 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Well, those are wonderful things, aren't they? That our consciences could be cleansed that our sin could be removed from us forever as far as infinity? Well, that's the opposite, ladies and gentlemen, of every other religious framework. 
Because every other religious framework has something to do with you being the best you can be, and maybe it'll all work out. I just hope I get in when I get to the pearly gates. I hope I've done enough good things. I hope, I hope it all balances out and I got more on the scale on the good side than the bad side. I think I got it. That's what other religious systems do, not Christianity. Christianity says you bring nothing but your guilt. God has given all the provisions. You know, uh, uh, this is an, an R-rated movie, but uh, uh, it's like from 30 years ago, so I don't even remember what was R-rated about it. But you remember Caddyshack, the movie Caddyshack? And you remember there at the country club pool, and some kid takes a Baby Ruth candy bar and chunks it in the pool? Well, you see one of those things floating by. What do you want to do? Get out of the pool. Well, all it takes is one detestable item floating by you in the pool, and you're like, you know what? This whole pool is ruined for the day. That's the problem of sin. Any transgression against God has, has messed it up. But it doesn't just stop there. The gospel doesn't just stop there. It's not just solving some moral math problem. It is uh, much deeper than that. And it's going to pull us back to uh, our passage here in just one second. But just listen to this. This is from John fourteen twenty three. Listen. Jesus says, um, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And listen, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, that's different too, isn't it? It's not Allah from afar who killed my wife and, and I don't, he's got to do some crazy reasons or whatever. Uh, it's not this distant deity. It's not uh, a plethora of idiotic deities. Uh, oh, look, an anthill. Let's make it a god and build a shrine around it. Mm, now we worship you. It's not that. It's this idea of a personal God who made us resembling him. He made us communicative like him. He, he gave a moral sense to us. He made us want to fellowship. He's relational. He communicates to us. He gives us his word. This says that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God will make a home with you. What's more personal than that, than having a, a father uh, who calls us children, uh, who sends the spirit of his own son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You've got a father and son who make a home with us in the power of the spirit that they sent. It's just amazing, ladies and gentlemen. And lastly, I'll give you this before we hit our passage. Another great ramification, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Is that the kind of God you want? I know. The plans I have for you. He knows them. He's not just going, oh, it's just terrible down there. Oh, maybe I can kind of help out a little bit if they would just let go of the, the steering wheel for a second. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not harm, to give you a future and a hope. Well, folks, was, was all that worth the price of admission? I feel like I could goof up everything else I say and it would still have been worthwhile for you to come today. But what's pulling us into the passage, ladies and gentlemen, is this. God's rest is for you, Christian. God's rest is for you. Not just someday, but now. God's fellowship and rest is for you. So let's look at the, uh, oh, I already did that. Hang on a second. Um, rest in a standing promise. That's our first point. Look at verse one of our passage. Verse one of Hebrews uh, four. Therefore, 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, it's very easy to uh, look at that and misinterpret it suddenly and go, ooh, does that put a question mark on his promise? Uh, that it still stands? Does that mean it, could, it might fail? The answer to that is simply no. That's not what this is saying. It is, it is saying the opposite. It is saying God's promise stands, yo. God's promise does stand. And since it stands, it, it's, it's uh, trying, to, trying to help us uh, behave um, in regard to it. Now, as I told you last time, a parallel has been drawn in chapter 3 and 4 to the wilderness wanderings of the Israelite people. A parallel has been made of them to us, uh, and, and the idea is that there are people in this day in life who do not believe the promises of God. Isn't that true? Some people do believe, some people don't believe. Well, back then in the nation Israel and the worshiping um, people Israel, there were people who did believe the promise of God and people who didn't believe the promise of God. That's the parallel that's being made. And the, the warning is, um, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, 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 they saw the amazing stuff God did. They felt what it was to be delivered from Egyptian slavery and captivity. They felt what it was to have supplies given to them, to have God guiding them through the wilderness, keeping them safe. They knew that. And they still disbelieved. They disobeyed. And thus, they don't enjoy the rest. There have always been a believing people or a not a believing people. And the warning for us, the parallel is, for, for these original hearers, which were Jewish Christians, he's saying, hey, we have to be on guard lest we see the amazing things of God and uh, fall away. That doesn't mean that the promise isn't sure. That doesn't mean that if you're, not, if you're saved, you're not really saved, or you're on unsure footing. It doesn't mean that at all. It's saying that, it, what, it, what it's challenging is saying, are you, do, are you really in the kingdom? That's what it's saying. Oh, yes, you live in a nice scrubbed, sanitized zip code and you go to a lovely church and you have all these Christian friends and you do all these things and you know all these Bible answers and your kids are in a private school and all that stuff. But that's great. But are you really a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the warning. It, it, it just pulls us back to the basics. Look at verse three, um, the first part of it. For we who have believed enter that rest. Friends, does everybody enter that rest? No. It goes on. Um, as I swore in my wrath, he's quoting Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. So those who believe belong to God. Those who don't do not enter his rest. Um, just as God's spirit does not reside in everyone, so his eternal rest is not afforded everyone. All right, so to apply that to your life. Um, Let's turn to a very famous passage in John, the Gospel of John. That would be John 3, 36. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son, that's a capital S, that's Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That is a frightening thought, isn't it? That the wrath of God remains on him. Just as God sets his saving love, his wrath is 
set upon those who do not believe. And you know that wrath word is in our passage today too. I mean, uh, God says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Um, Look at verse one of our passage again. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, I just love how this is put. It's just very convicting, um, challenging. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's just, those are just loaded words, I think. Um, I, I think. I think the point is that we need each other. I don't know about you, but I've seen plenty of people who have, uh, you know, they come to Christ and they're 15 years old and they've been on some kind of a trip or something and <clears throat> they come to Christ and they're excited and they have this newfound faith and they go to youth group and they're excited and they go to college and they make some mistakes, but still, uh, yay. And then they have some kids and then they're immersed in church life. Oh, we're just a young couple. We're 33 and we've got three kids and aren't they sweet? And they're immersed in church life. Oh, they're going all the stuff. I volunteered on the trip. I even rode a bus, which is the most horrible thing in the whole world, but I love my kids. And uh, we raised them up. And then finally, bam, they're out of the house, college. Bam, they're out of the house. Just money flying out the door. Bam, another one, just money. Ah, big party, you know, uh, expensive. And uh, finally, they're, they're out, and, and, and the parents go, oh, we're free. Uh, and uh, then another 10 years pass, and another 20 years pass, and they've heard the same preacher, and they've heard his stories, and they know all these Christian answers, and they've heard about all these Christian authors, and they've been to a lot of conferences, and they're like, you know what, I'm just not going to go to any more conferences, because I've been to enough conferences in my life. And then sometime, uh, they're like 59 years old, and then they disappear, and they float around, and they fall out of fellowship, and they kind of pop in like a celebrity, and uh, they're just this distant fringe-type character, and then, wow, mistakes, and questioning things, and even falling away from the faith, and I ran into a guy a couple weeks ago, I hadn't seen in a long time, and, and he said, yeah, I'm, and I've got a, I got a new faith, I got a new faith, some kind of Eastern bull uh, and uh, I got out a new faith. And I'm like, really? Because you used to be immersed in church life and culture. Um, what I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, is that we're safe in the Lord Jesus. We're secure and the promise is sure. But let us fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. This says a lot of things, but one of the things it's saying is that the church is a means of grace, is that we need each other. It's a testimony to life itself and a means by which we grow. There's no holistic spiritual growth apart from fellowship in in the midst of God's worshiping people. There's none of it. It's not an option. It's not a bonus. It's not a little extra for your life. It's not that. You have to have the fellowship of the company of saints. So I just ask you a challenging question. Will you do that? Will you see to it? Will you see to it for yourself? Will you see to it for the souls uh, that are in your care, your spouse, your children, your friends, the people around you? Uh, It's critical to our spiritual health. Uh, We should fear, even though the promise stands sure. Second point, rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, I'm gonna flip to um, Genesis 2. And uh, you don't have to get there. I'm I'm already there. But... um, It says, thus, 
the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all, his, with all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, isn't it interesting? I mean, didn't, did God, was he tuckered out? Whew, man, I'm worn out, I better rest. No, he ceased his creating work. He ceased his efforts. Um, and, you know, that's quite a gospel parallel for us, too. You know, we can cease our efforts uh, toward, um, toward any kind of uh, accomplishment of salvation, of course. But notice that uh, um, God says, uh, as I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's in verse 3 of our passage. The next thing that's said, it's very interesting. As I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's quoting David from Psalm 95. The next thing that's said. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Isn't that interesting? That the next thing after this, when it's talking about uh, coming into rest or not coming into rest, it's saying God rested on the seventh day. He ceased his creative efforts. All right? Now, a lot of things can be said here, but let me, what I'd like to single out for you is this. If it says... Uh, rest. Whose rest is it? It's God's rest. It says uh, my rest, right? But what does that mean? That that we'll enter God's rest. What does that mean? Does that mean, you know, a papaya drink on the beach? Um, does it mean the the absence of any conflict at all? I mean, what does what does rest mean? Is it sentimental? Um, we don't gain God's attributes suddenly. Uh, what what does it mean that we we have His rest? Well, I think it's a few different things. It is a divine rest. It's uh, not what we would come up with. It's a divine rest. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, uh, he says, uh, it is the rest God himself enjoys. Well, that seems simple enough, right? But think about it. We're not merely given some kind of a spiritual bubble bath. Um, it's a rest that pours out from God's own personal rest. Uh, to illustrate that, let's go to Elvis. Elvis, big star, has uh, the cool house and he's famous the world over. And, you know, he would wake up his buddies, right, and say, hey, firing up the plane, let's fly to Vegas and get us a peanut butter and uh, banana sandwich. And uh, what? okay, Elvis, let's do it. Rock on. And on the plane they go and over. Well, what are they enjoying? Elvis's rest. They're on his plane. They're on his dime. They're on his time. They're, they're on his, his program. They're enjoying Elvis's rest. Okay, that's, a, that's some dude rock, rock and roll guy. What about the Lord of glory who understands everything, who made you, who cares about every intimate detail of your life? who never cuts his eye away from you. What about entering that God's rest where he says, you know what? I know the plans I have for you. They're good plans. Fellowship with me. Come into my rest. Rest on those things. Um, it's, a, it's a divine rest. God shares his rest. We rest in his care, okay? So it's a divine rest. It's also a cosmic rest. Um, in our passage here, it says... Uh, um, Oh, yeah, yeah, three and four. Um, 
Yeah, foundation of the world. He has spoken somewhere in the, the God rested. God rested on the seventh day and all that. Um, it has been many times noted, ladies and gentlemen, that in, in the creation account, you know, you go through, you know, go to the very first page of the Bible. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, he says, let there be light. There was evening and morning. There was the first day. And then God uh, separates the stuff, and there, there's evening and morning the second day. And the God with the heavens and the, the waters and the seas, and that was good. Uh, there's another day. There's another day. There's another day. Morning and evening, another day. But on the seventh day, as I say, it's been many times noted, on the seventh day, that's when it doesn't say there was morning and evening, another day. It says that God stopped his work, and it's this perpetual thing. He's perpetually in rest. He's not, he's not creating the universe anymore. He's done it. And so it's a cosmic rest for us, ladies and gentlemen. It, it's, uh, um, you know, no matter how you take creation, whether it's literal six days or the, if, if that's highly stylized speech uh, that gives us an old earth and all that stuff, however you take it, it's still the same kind of an idea. We see a picture of God's perpetual rest. He ceases working in creation and rests still. All right, last thing about it. So it's, it's divine, it's cosmic, but it's, it's perpetual, as, as I just said. Um, in our passage, God says, they shall not enter my rest, but some will. Some won't, some will. And hooked right to the back of that train car is God resting after creating uh, creation activity. And so the point is, we don't just enjoy rest as this thing hanging out there. Like one day, all this stuff will be over and I'll finally get some rest. No, no. That's not how it is. It is that now we enjoy a relationship with God. Now we can call him Abba Father. Now we can pray and know that he hears us. Now we have fellowship with the Savior in the, in the power of the Spirit. Now, 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 not just some future date. Oh, um, will, sin will be removed from us one day. And, uh, you know, as Bob Wood told me at Man Cake, this is the, the I mean, if, you, if you're an eight, how old is Bob? Eighty. How old is he? Super old. <laughs> but I mean, don't you, you, don't you think, oh, I wonder what Bob Wood thinks about all the time. You know what he thinks about? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You think about that. He stood right there and said, you think about that. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. They will. Well, man, that'll give me some rest. <laughs> I mean, things are going to be awesome. But it doesn't mean that we don't have fellowship with him now and that we can't enjoy rest right now. We're all partakers in a present reality, even though we don't often live it. And so I give you a quote that I gave you last week. Same quote, Arkent Hughes. Listen, the principle is so simple. The more trust, the more rest. There is not a fretful soul in the world who is trusting. You have a fretful soul? That's called distrust. Very simple recipe. Ah, it's not, uh, not simple lives, not simple situations, not simple things pressing on us from the outside and simple things pressing on us from the inside. No, those aren't simple. Those are hard. Those are hard realities often. But the issue is the same. You either trust God or you distrust God. You know, you stand on the edge of the pool and, and uh, daddy says, jump into my arms. You either jump into his arms or you don't jump into his arms. You either trust it or you don't trust it. You trust him or you don't trust him. That's a, that's a simple recipe. 
Um, and, and when you distrust, you deny the reality of these promises. God's rest is for you, ladies and gentlemen. The rest is a present rest. It is for you. All right, our last point uh, is this. Um, rest in God's profoundly personal word. Um, it, it's, it's so amazing. You look at, um, you look at verse 11. Um, let us... Um, Oh, where was I going to... There was something that just popped out when I was reading this earlier. Um, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by that same sort of disobedience. All right? Let us, let us strive to enter that rest. The next thing that's said is, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, and so on. Isn't it interesting? Because usually when you hear that passage handled, it's completely isolated from the context. Hey, it's, uh, we're going to talk about the importance of the Bible today, and uh, this is uh, the, the support passage that I'm going to show you about the Word of God. But isn't it interesting that it's talking about rest in this God, and it's like the how-to. The wor- for, it's, not, it's, not, it's connected. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints, marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and so on. And by the way, uh, you don't have to say, oh, this week we're going to spend uh, this Sunday on joints and marrow, and next week we're going to talk about uh, uh, the uh, uh, division of soul and spirit. That's cuckoo, ladies and gentlemen. What this is saying is the Bible gets in everywhere. The Bible finds every unturned stone. The Bible cuts into every single place. The Bible judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if, you're, if God has opened up his word to you, you have eyes to see, ears to hear, you read it, you know that that's true. God's word challenges and convicts and finds its way in. He finds his way in. So to apply this to you, friends, um, I am honestly, I'm astounded by the amount of people that I talk to that, that, or just see, or conferences, and just, just personal exchanges where people are going, oh, I just need something more personal. I mean, God's just, it's just I just want, there's got to be something more than this Christianity. You know, I, I, there, people are clamoring for some kind of extra boost or some kind of testosterone shot for the soul or something that's just going to kind of give it a little bit more oomph and make God a little more accessible, make God a little bit more personal. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? It doesn't get more personal than a God who's given you his word and the spirit who penned that word resides in you. You ever heard of a personal savior? You have? I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior. Well, guess what? We have a personal God. You don't have to look for magic potions and little books people write and little conferences people put on. It's great to, it's great to read Christians. It's great to read other authors, and we all ride on the coattails of other Christians who have gone before us, from hymnody to books to everything, to preaching. It is so true. But ladies and gentlemen, this is how God is personal, not by little sparkly oomphs everywhere. He is personal in the application of his word to your spirit. So if you want rest, this is what gives you the application. You want rest? You want to enjoy God's Sabbath rest? That's, that's a present reality and a future reality? Well, here's how you can know him. 
Here's how you know him specially. Here's how you know him specifically. He reveals himself not by the gut hunches you have in your stomach. He reveals himself precisely in his word, in the power of the spirit he sent. Last thing, I'll, I'll close with this. Um, you know, um, Jesus is challenged. Um, and I can't remember if I said this last week or a, a while back, but um, um, Jesus is challenged. Uh, he and his disciples are going through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples are hungry. They began to pluck ears of corn, and the Pharisees go, oh, breaking the Sabbath. Your disciples are working on the Sabbath. They're harvesting corn. You know, they're plucking corn because they're hungry. And um, Jesus says, uh, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? I mean, he goes into the, not the Durant Temple, he goes into the temple and he eats, he eats the showbread of the temple. And uh, was it lawful or not uh, for the priest to give it to him and so on? And Jesus goes on to tell, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And they're like, hmm, what are you saying, Jesus? He's talking about himself. Something greater than temple's here. I'm it. Oh, a little concerning, Jesus. Uh, Bob, he keeps on going. If you had known what this means, I desire and mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He calls himself the Son of Man all the time. So they're saying, oh, oh, Jesus, Jesus. You just said you're greater than the temple, or at least alluded to that, and now you're saying you're Lord of the Sabbath? You mean you're... You're able to interpret God's law and tell us the original meaning of it? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? All right, the day moves on. He goes on from there, enters the synagogue. There's a guy with a withered hand. The dudes are still watching him. And and they said, hey, uh, Jesus, is it lawful to uh, uh, heal on the Sabbath? They want to accuse him of working on the Sabbath and violating God's law. Um, And he tells a story. He says, hey, if a sheep falls in a pit, are you going to let the poor thing die or are you going to get it out? And uh, he says, he says um, to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretches it out. And it was restored, healthy like the other. So basically Jesus is going, okay, you want to see something? I, I said I was Lord of the Sabbath. How about watch this? I just proved I'm, I'm divine. And, uh, and the Pharisees, what do you think they did? Think they were confused? Oh, who is this guy claiming to be? Mm, I don't know, what, what is he saying? The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They, they understood what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I've got the power. I am the savior. I am divine. I am God. I'm the son of man. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And uh, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, back to our passage here. If you want rest in this life, it's afforded you. It's not just an optimism kind of a thing. It's, it's not finding a new faith and a new way and a new way to cope and all that. Um, the personal God offers you himself and brings you into his own personal rest. Lord Jesus, um, help us see Help us understand, help us embrace whatever's true. What's true, Lord? Uh, we, we want it. We don't want, we don't want fables. We don't want manufactured belief systems. We don't want to um, base our eternity 
or even our happiness in this life on hunches that we have about religious things. We want the truth. So my prayer is that you'll open up our eyes and hearts to the truth. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you will give your weary people rest. It is a hard pilgrimage, and um, it's full of things we never expected. And um, we know that hardships have come and hardships await, and that we'll all pass through this life to the next hard. Give us your rest, Lord. Uh, Remind us that uh, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. Um, And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.